0: All right, everyone, welcome back to Didactic Mind, episode uh, 44, I believe we're up to now. Uh, let me just check that out. You know, episode 44, indeed. Uh, episode 44, One Man, One Book, Part 2. Very warm welcome to all of my loyal readers from the blog. Always a pleasure to have you here. Very warm welcome to all of my SoundCloud subscribers. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being a subscriber. And if you have not subscribed already, please make sure you hit the subscribe button and uh, get the word out, get this uh, podcast um, a bit more popularity and a bit more love in terms of the linkage, and uh, just share it among your friends if you see fit, and if you don't, then that's fine too, uh, because what I discuss is not necessarily uh, stuff that everybody wants to hear, but that's okay. Um, I basically uh, have a couple of announcements to make, one of which is that um, the blog has moved or, okay, hasn't completely moved yet, is in the process of moving over to self-hosted WordPress, uh, which has been something that I've wanted to do for a long, long time and uh, I started off doing it back in like May of this year and if not earlier, maybe in March actually and uh, so it's been about that long. It's been like four or five months since I started on this whole um, website, web design kick that I've been on for some time now. Um, The blog is going to be moving from didaxreach.blogspot.com to didacticmind.com, which I think is uh, much more aligned with what I want to do and where I want to be and what kind of brand I want to build. So uh, Didactic Mind is going to be exactly the same as uh Didact's reach in terms of output. It's just it's just literally picking and moving uh to another place. Um that site will be uh, comprehensively uh straightened out over the next week or two until it is uh to it, it has been set up to my satisfaction and then we'll be ready to go with the a full blog, um, you'll be able to click on affiliate links and support my work. There will be all sorts of, uh, new stuff that will be up there for you to explore and work with. There will be links to the other sites that I'm building out, uh, starting with, of course, Superb Shaving. And if you want to support my work, please go to superbshaving.com and make sure that, uh, you, uh, Click on some of the affiliate links there and check out the products. I haven't updated it in some time, but it will be updated soon once I find time to do it. Right now I'm a bit busy with some other things. Um, Not work-related, just kind of on holiday, actually. And the second announcement I want to make is uh, quite exciting for me personally. Uh, The Limitless Living course, uh, which I've been working on for the last two months now, with my friend Kyle Trouble, is going to be up next Tuesday, September 9th and there will be uh, a huge amount of content in it. It's basically a course designed to get people from where they are right now to somewhere more location-independent, somewhere that they can look to get out of the current, their current situation and move away from wherever they feel they are in the middle of a collapsing, dying civilization to hopefully some greener pastures. Now, my content is almost done for that course. Uh, the pre-sales are going on right now, and if you, um, I, I hope I will be able to share that link with you shortly. Uh, if you want to get in on the ground floor, because the the prices will start going up very very quickly. Um, we're already seeing significant substantial interest in the course, and it is uh, doing quite well in terms of pre-sales. So, I hope you will um, get in on that when it is released and you will uh, definitely give it a look. There is, as I said, an enormous amount of content in it. I mean, it is basically a structured plan to get you from wherever it is you are right now in the Western world to a different place, whether it's in Southeast Asia, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Latin America, to get you to go from where you are to where you want to be and to give you options and freedom and ideas to build a lifestyle that suits you personally, rather than uh, sitting where you are in a in a situation where you feel as though it's all just hopeless, it's all miserable. You're stuck in a in a world where you don't understand what's going on. You don't agree with um, the way that things are going. And the the key is to give you some tips and advice as to how to set up your own business, how to acquire a second passport, how to become locationally independent, um, how to see the world and move around a bit, if that's what you want to do. And, of course, people would, people might perhaps accuse me of being hypocritical, because I keep talking about the importance of nations and of being part of a tribe and all of that stuff. And that hasn't changed. I mean, if you if you really go through the course, you'll find that I spend quite a bit of time talking about that. Um, towards the end where I, I try to point out to people hey you need to be careful about what you're doing with this information uh, It's great information it's from phenomenal content but you have to be careful about how you apply it so uh, by all means give it a shout um, or give it a give it a look and uh, see what you like about it I should have links up very soon so that you can explore it and um, Go through the, the the course materials and uh, look at the modules, and see if it's something you would enjoy. Uh, if you do, if you if you like what you see, definitely buy it. It is well worth the the, the price of admission. You're actually getting tremendous amount of value for the price that you pay. You're not going to find that level or comprehensiveness of content anywhere on the web for that kind of price. You're not going to find it. It's just it's literally a massive brain dump from two people who have lived the life that a lot of others want to live, and explain uh, to the best of our abilities how to get to that life, if that's what you want to do. So um, with that out of the way, let's carry on with uh, the purpose of today's podcast, which is to talk about, to continue talking about um, the second great heresy, the second of the, great, the, the five great heresies, as Hilaire Belloc put it in his book. The great heresies. Uh, that great heresy is, of course, Mohammedanism or Islam. Now, I am well aware that what I have said and will say will be profoundly, uh, seemingly profoundly offensive to a lot of people. And I understand why people feel that way. I understand why people might uh, feel angry or uh, hurt or upset at what I have to say. All I will tell you is try to keep an open mind. Um, try to understand that every great book or great text of faith must be open, if we're being reasonable and, um, and open-minded, to the same level of criticism and analysis that the Bible has been for the last 2,000 years. Longer, in fact. Um, the reason why I am a Christian is because the Bible is true. Uh, okay, that's one of the reasons why I'm a Christian. Um, I'm a Christian because fundamentally I believe in the, in the existence of material evil, and Christianity is the one true solution to that problem. That is what I believe, and that is why I believe what I do. Subsequent to that, it, once you examine it, it becomes clear that the Bible itself is true, because if Christianity is true, the document that gave rise to it, the Bible, must also be true. So the question then becomes well what about all the other books that are out there what about the quran what about the vedas what about the upanishads what about the sayings of uh, the buddha siddhartha gautama what about um what's it called the book of mormon these also must be subjected and must be allowed to be subjected to the same criticisms that we have su- we have been subjected as christians in our beliefs And if you look in particular at Islam and Christianity, there is a very good reason why Islam is a heresy of Christianity. And that's been recognized, as I said in the previous podcast, since about the 8th century. It's been recognized for the better part of twelve to 1,300 years that Islam is a heresy of Christianity. The reason why it is a heresy is because in many ways it is a mirror image of Christianity itself. Christianity revolves around one man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and one book, the New Testament. The Old Testament for us as Christians is useful. We regard it as a compilation of godly wisdom, God-given wisdom. We regard it as the font of uh, knowledge about the spiritual realm, about God's will, God's purpose for us. Uh, we understand it to be. that that it gives us guidance and moral teaching and instruction. Unlike Jews, we do not regard it as the complete authority. We regard it as an incomplete gospel, an incomplete uh, set of ideas. We regard the New Testament as the completion of that gospel, of of those teachings, if you will. Uh, If I am being imprecise in my terminology or my language, please forgive me. I mean that very humbly. I am sorry um, to my Christian and Jewish brothers if I in any way um, make a mistake in what I say. If I do, uh, please feel free to correct me. I will humbly accept your corrections. Uh, I do not pretend to be an expert in this field. But nonetheless, I am simply trying to tell the truth as best as I can. So, with the Qur'an on the other side, in Islam... Muslims regard the Qur'an as the same completion of the old te- uh, of the old laws, of the old mosaic laws. Uh, that is why they say, at least they claim, that they accept the Old Testament in its entirety. They really don't. They actually don't. Uh, but they claim that they do. They claim that they accept everything in the Old Testament as written, uh, which opens them up immediately to some very serious uh, controversies and uh, problems because... The Old Testament, if accepted as written, actually negates and eliminates Islam as a possible successor immediately. And if you don't believe me, um, look at uh, the the discussion from a channel called Acts 17 Apologetics. Acts 17 Apologetics with uh, David Wood, in which he lays out this case very clearly. Um, David Wood is an, a very interesting fellow. Uh, check out a post of mine called Power and the Glory in which I go through his conversion uh, from diagnosed clinical psychopathy, and he is a clinical psychopath, to a believing Christian, and understand from his story the transformative power of Jesus Christ, because that's what you're going to get from that story. So, the Quran is a mirror image, almost a, a twisted mirror image of the New Testament. The Quran is, as I pointed out in the previous episode, significantly plagiarized. The New Testament is original. The Qur'an has a number of very serious mistakes. The New Testament is logically consistent. The Qur'an makes a number of very bad scriptural errors and a number of um, uh, scientific and historical errors. The New Testament does not. The Qur'an is uh, very 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 difficult to read. The New Testament is not. The Qur'an is supposed to be, it claims to be, uh, cl- it makes four claims basically. It makes f- uh, Islam in general actually makes four claims, not the Quran. But several of these claims are about the Quran. The four claims that Islam makes are that Islam, uh, excuse me, that the Quran is eternal, has existed uh, in heaven with Allah since the beginning of time. Since like forever basically because um, according to Islam, nothing happens if God does not will it. Uh, the Quran is complete. The Quran is unchanged throughout time. The Quran is uh, was sent down, revealed to Muhammad by the angel Gabriel, Jibril, as it said. Um, so those are those are the four claims that they make. And by the way, everything that I tell you, everything that I tell you in this podcast today, can be found in much more detail in far superior presentation uh, in a series of lectures by Dr., now Dr. Jay Smith, uh, on the Fander Films uh, channel, P-F-A-N-D-E-R, and he has his own, I think, ministry uh, of apologetics and polemics uh, online. I will try to include links to those in the description so you can get an idea of what he has to say, because he, what you're, what you're going to hear from me is, a distillation of a distillation of a distillation of vast amounts of material. So it's like you, what you're getting is three or four steps removed from the original material. Um, what I have, what I am telling you today is stuff that Dr. Jay Smith talks about in his videos. And in my opinion, he does a far superior job, but he takes a bloody long time to, to discuss it. And there is information in this podcast, which is synthesized from other sources, which Dr. Smith may not um, have gotten to in his time. Uh, we'll get to that later on. So, the these four claims that Islam makes about their faith, that the Quran is eternal, that the Quran is the perfect revelation, that the Quran was sent down to Muhammad, and that the Quran is unchanged. Well, we can't test the first two. We can test the other two. And all of the testing of the other two indicates that Nothing about what um, is written about the Qur'an by Islamic sources is even remotely true. Uh, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of differences within the Qur'an's plural that are available to us today. There, I mean, I, th- I said it was something on the order of 15,000 in my previous podcast. I went, I went back and double-checked. I was wrong. It's close to 56,000. And that's just among the 23 or 31 or however many different Qur'ans that have been found so far. They're all different versions, and these are not um, just reading differences. These are actual serious theological differences. These are differences where the, the, the words or the tenses or the subjects of uh, particular sentences have changed, which results in significant theological problems. Um, Muslims don't want to accept this. The moment you bring this up, they get very, very angry, and they start attacking you, uh, sometimes physically. Because they're so horrified by what they hear, they, they consider it to be utter blasphemy. Uh, but it's not blasphemy. It's just simple investigation. That's all it is. And the investigation into the details tells us that the claims that are made are, just don't hold up to scrutiny. So, I won't go too much deeper into the problems with the book, because I covered that already. Let's talk about the man, the Prophet Muhammad. Again, we see that Muhammad is a mirror image in many ways of our Lord and King Jesus Christ. Jesus is a prophet. Muhammad is a prophet. Jesus is sent down to uh, save mankind. Muhammad is given a revelation supposedly to save mankind. But there the differences really end. Jesus never killed or harmed anyone except maybe the moneylenders in the temple, where he, who, whom he chased out of his father's house with righteous fury. Uh, Jesus was known for being a healer, a uniter, a man of the people, a man who brought forth a message and a gospel of great peace and tolerance and caring and compassion. Muhammad is completely different. Uh, there's a book called uh, Muhammad a Psychological Analysis by J.K. Scheindlin, and it's a very difficult book to read simply because of all the horrendous grammatical errors that litter literate. But I read it a few years ago. Um, the analysis on the part of the author says that if you take Muhammad as at his word, as he is depicted in the Quran, uh, and not just in the Quran, but in other sources, the man was a complete psychopath. Uh, not just psychopathic, but mentally diseased. That's not me. That's not, that's not my words. These are the words of somebody else. Um, who assembled all the information that he could and wrote about it. If you look at the canonical origin story of Muhammad, what does it say? Muhammad was born in Mecca in 570 AD. He was born as part of the Hashem clan uh, into the Arabian in the Arabian Peninsula. He um, was a merchant for the first 40 years of his life. He was illiterate, but he married a rich woman named Khadija, his first wife. He uh, started receiving revelations in a cave that he went to to pray to his ancestors Uh, in 610 A.D. He started preaching that revelation for the next 12 years in Mecca uh, until 622 A.D. Then he fled with some of his followers to Medina, uh, also known as Yathrib in the scriptures in in the Quran, uh, in 622 A.D. He died in 632 A.D. under rather mysterious circumstances as shown towards the very end of the Quran in the very last passages. And after that uh, he was succeeded by a series of rightly guided guided, rightly guided caliphs or caliphs, however we pronounce the word, um, of various names, Ali, Abu Bakr, Uthman and uh, somebody else whose name I've forgotten, um, who created the Islamic Empire, the Arab Islamic Empire. And uh, that empire stretched out across the world and brought the light and glory of the Qur'an and Islam to all the various benighted peoples. I mean, that's that's the standard origin story as told by by Islamic sources. Every single aspect of the canonical origin story of Muhammad is false. Provably false. If that offends you, let me repeat this. Every single aspect of the canonical origin story of Muhammad is false. Provably so. Let's start with the idea that um, Muhammad was born in Mecca. The Quran doesn't really describe Mecca in any significant detail. uh, But it does provide some descriptions, and it basically says that Mecca was located in a valley with a parallel valley, that there's a rich source of water flowing through it, uh, that it's very fertile land, that there's clay, loam, and uh, a lot of vegetation around it, there's a mountain um, overlooking it, green fields around it, uh, that there are olive trees around Mecca. Uh, Here's the problem. If you actually look at Mecca, and this is what Jay Smith talks about in his presentation, it doesn't fit any of those attributes. There's supposed to be a pillar of salt nearby, which is supposedly where Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt during the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And supposedly the, the, the Kaaba uh, was built um, by Abraham when he was in that area. But if you actually look at the geography and um, nature of Mecca, not one of the original criteria is fulfilled. It's not a fertile place. It's it's actually non-existent on all of the trade route maps, on all of the um, maps of the ancient world that were used by uh, traders from China all the way into Europe, uh, through the Sassanid Empire, into Byzantine lands. Um, it's not as if Arabia was unknown at the time. I mean, there are lots of maps showing very accurate representations of Arabia. Um, but it didn't. It, it, it Mecca just didn't register as a place. It, it was. It, it's nowhere near a, a proper source of of, of good water. Um, it's nowhere near the coastline. It's not capable of being used as a trading destination. Now you would think that Islamic sources and other sources would indicate in the advent of the Islamic Empire within a few hundred, within a few years actually of the Prophet's death that Mecca was a very important place. But there isn't any reference to Mecca on maps until the mid-9th century or thereabouts. That's a good 150 years after Muhammad supposedly died. So what's going on? Mecca is not where the prophet could have come from, by the geography and the, histori- the historiography. It didn't happen. If you look at the life of the prophet himself, what is the evidence that we have for the existence of a man named Muhammad who came forth out of the desert preaching a new revelation? Astonishingly little, actually. Actually. Muhammad, as a name, did not exist in Arabic until well after the life of the prophet, until well into the late 7th century. Arabic, as a script, was not actually turned into a proper Semitic language with the diacritical markings and uh, the, the vowelizations and everything else until much later. Um, if, indeed, there was a prophet speaking Arabic and giving revelations, then it didn't happen the way that Islamic sources said it did, because nobody was able to. Nobody is able to look at coins or any other evidence from that period and say, "That's Muhammad. That is um, the you know the, the the name Muhammad is written down, and it indicates uh, a great prophet. And here's the Bismillah, the the, the uh, basically the the the, the blessing um, from Allah." And here is the Shahada, the the, the witness, essentially, that says, um, you know, this is the prophet of Islam, and uh, this is his revelation. That doesn't happen in the numismatic coinage evidence until way too late. It doesn't happen until 150 years later. If you then look at um, the evidence of his existence from canonical Islamic sources, which is to say the Hadith the Sirah and the Tafsir, which is to say the sayings of the Prophet, the, the biography of the Prophet and the exegetics, uh, the commentaries, if you will, um, all of that is taken from sources that came much later. The most commonly used set of sources of the sayings of the Prophet is, of course, the Hadith of Al-Bukhari. Al-Bukhari uh, came along in the mid-9th century and basically said, uh, I want to put together a set of sayings attributable to the Prophet, and I'm going to compile them together into a book that gives, or into a series of volumes that gives us the definitive authoritative account of what the Prophet actually said. He gathered together something like 600,000, that's an astonishing number, sayings attributed to Muhammad at the time that he was alive. Now, bear in mind, this is 150 years or more after the death of Muhammad, the supposed death of Muhammad, 632 AD. That's a very important date. Um, this is sort of late 8th century, early 9th century, thereabouts, that he's, he's starting to write this. Uh, I don't know the exact, I can't remember the exact dates. If you, if I'm, again, if I'm mistaken with the dates, go check out J. Smith's, Dr. J. Smith's work. He'll set you straight, he'll give you everything you need to know. The, the dates are important, and if I get them wrong, I'm sorry, but they're less important than the content. Okay? The, uh, the, the 600,000 sayings are whittled down by 98%. 98% of everything that Al-Bukhari got was considered to be garbage. So he threw them all out and he was left with about 12,000 sayings, um, quotations, I, you know, attributions to the Prophet which were assembled into the massive compendium of volumes which comprised the Hadith. Now, the Hadith basically are sayings of sayings of sayings that people heard supposedly from all the way back then. Um, they paint a picture of a, a very, very nasty character. They paint a picture of a man who happily slaughtered uh, hundreds of people, if it suited him, they paint a picture of a man who was quite happy to commit pedophilia. They, they paint a picture of a bloodthirsty, power-hungry tyrant. Um, this is the exact opposite of what Jesus Christ was, which is why I keep saying that Muhammad and Jesus are mirror images of each other, just as the Quran and the New Testament are mirrors mirror images of each other. Uh. If you look furthermore at the numismatic evidence, which is to say the coinage, the earliest Islamic coinage shows a cross, without the cross piece, but it shows a cross. It shows the Byzantine cross. Why would Islamic coinage show a cross when Islam considers the cross to be anathema? When Islamic tradition holds that Jesus did not actually die on the cross, that he was whisked away by... God, Um, even though Jesus himself was not the Son of God, because the idea uh, to Muslims that God could have a son is is utter blasphemy. Uh, To them, they say, as far as they're concerned, God is one and eternal. Um, As far as they're concerned, there can be no other. So Jesus as Son of God is impossible. They regard him as merely a prophet, a mighty man, but a prophet, Uh, nothing more than a prophet. And he was whisked away from the cross, away from death by crucifixion, uh, and he was um, spared. And either an imposter or Judas Iscariot himself died on the cross, and uh, Jesus was sent away somewhere. I don't know uh, exactly where. I don't think Islam is too clear about that. But the uh, the issue with all of that is that the cross itself is a symbol that Muslims find profoundly offensive, uh, and to have it appearing on the earliest Islamic coins doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The earliest Islamic coins you can go see them in the British Library. Uh, excuse me, the British Museum. The British Museum. You can go see them. Uh, Right there on Russell Street. I've been there numerous times. Uh, I've never seen the coin collection, but it's right there. You can go see it for yourself. And you can go look at these coins, which have the Byzantine cross and an image of a man. Uh, Why would the earliest Islamic coins have an image on them when idolatry is supposedly utterly forbidden under Islam? Subsequent Islamic coins don't have that. Subsequent Islamic coins have the image removed They have the Shahada, they don't have the cross. So what's going on? Why is it that the the earliest evidence that we have of Islam as a distinct and unique civilization, as a way of life, um, is profoundly Persian in character? Why, Why is it that what we see early on in the Islamic empire is actually profoundly Persian? Profoundly influenced by Sassanid culture? It doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, if you look at the evidence from um, the time period uh, in terms of the earliest Islamic manuscripts, the earliest codices, uh, there is another huge problem. There are a number of early manuscripts which actually predate the life of Muhammad based on carbon dating. Now, the carbon dating is notoriously inaccurate, and anyone who is skeptical about um, the usage of carbon dating for... Figuring out dates of things is perfectly justified in my opinion. Nothing wrong with um, being a bit wary and leery of that. But carbon dating is still a useful technique. Uh, essentially what happens is you observe as the carbon atoms decay into nitrogen and based on the rate of decay, which is very predictable, you can figure out how old something is um, within a certain margin of error. And the, the farther back you go, the greater that error becomes. So, if you look at the uh, Sana palimpsest, which is uh, a manuscript uh, written on deer skin that came from Sana in Yemen and was found I think in the 1980s uh, originally. The samples of the Sana manuscript were sent to four different labs around the world. Uh, and those labs tested the the parchment for carbon dating and for age decay. And they found a range of dates that made it impossible for the canonical story of Islam to be true. Because the canonical story says very plainly, Muhammad received these revelations in in 610. He preached until, or he brought forth those revelations until 632, um, at which point he died, and the it was considered a Closed affair. His uh, his his revelations ended, and Islam, as we know it, was codified. But the the very first Quran was not compiled until 652, like 20 years after his death under Uthman. Um, Abu Bakr, the second of the, uh, or I think it was the first, I forget, uh, of the rightly guided caliphs, caliphs, said, I'm going to put together all the sayings of Muhammad, and he went to uh, Zayed ibn Tabit. Uh, Muhammad's secretary and said, compile everything you have into uh, a set of books, and um, that was done, and various manuscripts were sent out. But the, the, the age of the Sana'a palimpsest, which is radically different from the Quran that people have today, I mean, to the degree where uh, Turkish Islamic scholars who have studied it basically say, this is not uh, this is an early Quran, but it is not a text that we recognize today as the Quran. It's it's definitely Quranic, it's definitely a Quran, but it's not what we would it's not what we worship today. It's not what we use today. Um, what exactly is going on? I mean, why is it that the the samples from the manuscripts indicate that the manuscript is in some ways older than Muhammad himself? The the earliest date that we have for uh, one of the ma- one of the samples is. Um, actually 568 AD. So the animal could have been killed, the animal that was used to make the manuscript could have been killed in 568 AD. And it also could have been killed um, like right just around the, the time that Muhammad died. Um, there's another estimate, which I think is even earlier than that. It, the The carbon dating actually goes back to the 5th century. So what, on earth is going on. I mean we should be able to find one manuscript that conforms to the Islamic timeline which says from 652 AD you have a complete Quran but you actually don't because all of the earliest manuscripts that you can find that are actually in any way complete date back to around the time of the Prophet or about 150 years later and they don't make sense compared to the Quran of today so the the claim of eternal and unchanging, is blown out of the water instantly uh, by that evidence. And then you have the problem of Islamic qiblas. Now, a qibla is uh, basically a direction of prayer. If you go to any Islamic country, if you stay in a hotel, and you look up at the ceiling, you'll find a little sticker. And I I saw this in Turkey, I saw it in Malaysia, I saw it in uh, some places in Indonesia, I saw it in the UAE, uh, every single Islamic country that I've ever been to has had this, where you walk into a room, in a hotel room, or into a public facility, and you look up at the ceiling, or you look somewhere in the room, there'll be a sticker saying, pray in this direction, pray pray towards Mecca. Well, Mecca is... The only reason you're praying towards Mecca is because that's the birthplace of the prophet. Well, we we have very good evidence it's not, that's not even close to true. Um, Mecca, by the way... The Arabs are digging deep into Mecca right now to try to make it the center of the Arab world. They're trying to build a huge clock tower in uh, Mecca, which will rival Big Ben, and they, were, they are trying to switch the world to Mecca mean time uh, rather than Greenwich mean time. So they're going from GMT to MMT. And you would think that when they're digging deep into the foundations of Mecca, into the, into the bedrock and the, and the soil, to build all these huge structures that they're building. They're building a bunch of skyscrapers out there and, uh, and other very impressive structures. They would have to dig deep to build these things. You would think that when they do this, they should find a treasure trove of artifacts that would support the Islamic narrative that this is the home of the Prophet. This is an incredibly important city in time. They found absolutely jack. You know why? Because there's nothing there. And if you if you want a historical parallel, I mean, look at Hisarlik in Turkey. That's where uh, Henrik Schliemann went. He 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 figured that was the uh, location of the ancient city of Troy. He went there and he dug deep into the ground of Hisarlik, and unfortunately, because he was an amateur, he really damaged a lot of the dig site. But he found. Um, not one city, but like seven cities, one you know built on top of each other. And the city that he originally thought of as Troy, it turns out it probably wasn't. It was too late in time. Um, but subsequent archaeologists, professional archaeologists went there and did a much better job of digging through and they found a city that could very likely have been the ancient Troy. shows all the signs of fire damage and war and destruction. That are depicted in the Iliad. The Iliad predates the Quran by over two, three thousand years. We have pretty good fragments of, you know, very small fragments, but good, well-preserved fragments of the Iliad, um, dating back over a thousand, over over two and a half thousand years, I think, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Um, we should be able to find evidence in Mecca, which is much better attributed and much better understood than the Iliad ever was, indicating that this is true, but we don't find it. The Arabs are actually demolishing the place where they said the home of the Prophet was. Why? Because they don't want anybody to know or notice that their story has some serious problems with it. If you look at the... I was talking about the Qiblas, and the reason why these orientations are so important is because Dan Gibson, an archaeologist um, and geologist, and um, not geologist, sorry, but an archaeologist of of considerable skill and note, did an extremely accurate and highly scientific survey of all the ancient Qiblas that he could find. And what he found was devastating. He went to all of the earliest mosques that we know of from uh, the time of the sixth. Uh, sorry, the 7th to the 9th centuries. He looked at their foundations. He tried to find wherever he could the Qibla, the direction of prayer, and he used extremely accurate satellite mapping from the Japanese. So these guys, aren't, they, don't have a, they don't have a dog in this fight. The Japanese uh, satellite imaging systems, um, which allowed him to map out it, it, with astonishing degrees of precision the directions of prayer from uh, mosques that existed actually that predate the life of the Prophet. These are actual mosques where the foundations were laid down in in one or two cases, a hundred years before the Prophet supposedly came along. There's one in Guangzhou in China, which uh, apparently was founded during the supposed life of the Prophet. The direction of prayer from the Qiblas, once you take into account the curvature of the earth, which Google Maps doesn't do, but these satellite systems do, once you take that into account and you look um, at the exact lines of the directions of prayer, where do they go? Well, earlier scholars who looked at this said they all converge on Jerusalem because they're off from Mecca by a considerable degree. The, the earliest mosques are not facing Mecca. They're probably facing Jerusalem. Um, it turns out those earlier scholars were off by about 3 to 5 degrees. And subsequently, Dan Gibson came along and looked at it, and he found all of those mosques were facing a city called Petra. Why is Petra so important? Petra is a city in Jordan, uh, modern-day Jordan. It is the It was the center of an ancient and very glorious civilization called the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans were traders... Uh, of unparalleled skill. They created a trading empire that made them vastly wealthy. And they created a government and a system without kings or significant rulers. They were, in many ways, one of the first democracies. They were an extremely advanced civilization and an extremely wealthy one, an extremely powerful one. Uh, they were, in many ways, uh, you could consider them like the Medici's of their day. Uh, ex- astonishingly cultured. And if you look at Petra, and you compare it with what the Quran says about the location of the home of the prophet, fits perfectly with every last description. It is impossible for olive trees to grow in the Arabian Peninsula. They don't grow there because it's too bloody hot. But in Petra, they do, because it's around the Mediterranean. So it has the perfect climate for olive trees. It is a very fertile area. It's, Petra is built in a valley with a parallel valley uh, there's a, There are rivers running through it uh, the soil is made of clay and loam uh, it 's a very very fertile crescent uh, very rich in in produce and uh, and uh, it's a the exact location where you would expect a trading empire to be located. It was located right there on the trade routes between the Sassanids and the Byzantines at the time on top of which you have another set of problems, which is where um, while most of the early Qiblas were facing Petra, a few of them faced Jerusalem and a few more of them faced this rather odd line between Petra and Mecca. They were parallel to that line of, um, of, of traversement between the two cities. And this is a, a bit of a problem because the historical narrative starts falling apart very quickly. Um, or I should say the Quranic narrative. The historical narrative is coherent. The Quranic narrative makes no sense. Um, the historical narrative basically says that what you're looking at is the result of a massive power struggle. And I'm going to get to that in you know, just a short while when I talk about likely alternative origin stories. Muhammad. So, again, I mean, I've barely scratched the surface. You can look at uh, Dr. J. Smith's full two-and-a-half-hour lecture on this, or you can look at the CIRA uh, International uh, film series on this, uh, which is well worth watching, a phenomenal series. And it'll break it all down for you in terms of details. And I'm sure, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff um, that they will correct uh, from what I've said. And the information is changing all the time, because this is all new stuff. Islam is now facing what Christianity has faced for 2,000 years. Um, There was a big crisis in the Christian world in the early 1900s when a lot of evidence had emerged seemingly contradicting the existence of Jesus, the historical Jesus, uh, and the early roots of Christianity. All of that has since been reconciled, and uh, Jesus' existence is now considered the most compelling historical fact of all time. That's not me saying that. That's not, those are not my words. That is the, those are the words of a German atheist historian who absolutely denies the divinity of Jesus Christ, denies the truth of Christianity, but says that Jesus is the single most reliably documented figure in all of human history. He existed. Maybe not exactly how he was described in the Bible, but he existed. So, for Christians, we don't have to worry about these problems, and I'll get to that at the end. So what, then, are we to do with Muhammad? What can we do here? If you look at the Quranic inscriptions, there's one uh, one last thing that I want to get to. The Quran talks about the Muhammadna, or the blessed one, the paraclete in, in Greek. The, the Muhammadna is very easily... Uh, very easy to mis ascribe or mistranslate as Muhammad. What does the the Muhammad refer to? The blessed one, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. What do we already know about the Quran? That it was significantly plagiarized from, uh, among other things, the Old Testament, the Bar Sanhedrin, various Christian lectionary texts, various uh, Gnostic texts from the time. Uh, all of which regard either Old Testament um, law as canonical, or which accept the presence of a prophet named Jesus Christ. What, furthermore, do we know about the Quran's understanding of uh, Jesus's lineage? It's very poor. Um, Jesus is described as the son son of Mary, Mariam. Okay, fine. That's that's Isa is described as the son of Mariam. Okay, fine. But then. Mariam's brothers are described as Moses and Aaron. What? How did that happen? Because that's nonsense. I mean, Jesus was separated from Moses and Aaron by a good, what, 3,000 years, maybe more? Uh, I could be wrong about it. I'm probably wrong about the timeline. It could be anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 years. I I have no idea. Um, But it's an enormous span of time. There's no way the two of them could be related. The Quran gets that blatantly wrong. So, who, then, is the Qur'an referring to? What we now know, today, is that based on the evidence, and if you don't believe me, you can go look at Robert Spencer's book, uh, Did Muhammad Exist?, uh, for a detailed analysis. The Muhammad, as described in the earliest texts, almost certainly did not exist. He was almost certainly a composite of various figures. One of whom, the most important of whom, was probably Joshua of Nun. Why? Because the life of Muhammad parallels the life of Joshua of Nun very, very clearly. Joshua was a warrior, uh, a warlord, a fighter of astonishing skill, a legendary figure in, in Jewish canon. Went forth and slew the enemies of the Isra- uh, the Israelites, the enemies of the Lord, with absolute ferocity and no mercy whatsoever. He is regarded as the exemplar of a warrior, and that is the perfect template for Muhammad as described in the Medinan Sutras. Um, shit, sorry. The Medinan the Medinan Surahs, not Sutras. Um, I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. Um, the another aspect of it is Muhammad's existence as a political figure. Well he was an illiterate merchant, according to tradition. So how did he suddenly go from being an illiterate merchant to the ruler of a vast empire? Especially given that the Arabs were not known for disciplined armies. They were a, nomad, they were a nomadic desert people. They did not have the kind of uh, formations and troops required to conquer that kind of territory. The more you look at it, the more you realize that the ex- the early Islamic narrative just doesn't hold together now there are two at this point there are two different um, possible trajectories for all of this the first is uh, outlined in Emmett Scott's book um, uh, the Impact of Islam and the second is given by dr. J. Smith in his lecture and he's drawing on other sources Emmett Scott argues that Early Islam was actually the result of a conversion on the part of the Sassanid Persian Emperor uh, Khosrau or Khosrowes II. As I described in the previous podcast, there was a thriving offshoot of Nestorian Christianity called the Ebionite cult, or sect, that existed in the Arabian Peninsula around the time of the 7th century. It's very very influential, very powerful, and we know from historical records that the favorite wife of Khosrau II, uh, a very beautiful Nestorian Christian named Shirin, converted to Ebionitism and probably influenced her husband as well. Furthermore, if you look at the earliest Islamic civilization, it is, as I said, profoundly Persian in nature. So the conclusion that Dr. Scott reaches is that, or not Dr. Scott, he's not a doctor, um, Emmett Scott reaches, is that Ebionitism made its way into the Persian royalty. The Persians converted very, very readily from Zoroastrianism to this uh, this new faith, which basically, if you look at the, the nature of Islam, cond- condones everything that is uh, all about power, wealth, influence, and... Um, denies everything that is about abstinence and uh, stepping away from worldly pleasures, and promises um, an eternal reward that is great and rich and wonderful for committing uh, some pretty terrible deeds in this life. So, in that light, it makes a lot of sense that uh, a very rich and decadent empire, which is what the Persian Sassanid Empire was, would very happily convert to this new faith uh, and would use uh, Arab Bedouin uh, nomads as shock troops, whereas the much more disciplined, well-armed, armoured, but slow Persian heavy cavalry would follow behind them, uh, accompanied by the vast Persian war machine. And we know it is an incontrovertible fact, the geographical evidence tells us this, that the Persian empire swept across the lands of the Byzantine empire in the late 7th century uh yeah the late 7th to early 8th centuries uh with devastating impact conquered you know all of uh the Levant most of Egypt uh much of North Africa the armies of uh the early Islamic empire went all the way as deep as France and they were stopped decisively by Charles Martel the Hammer um In 732, I think it was. Uh, But they conquered all of Spain before that. So all of this happened with the backing and influence and money of the Persians. And eventually, over time, and Emmett Scott is unable to explain exactly how this happened, um, there was a sort of an internal power struggle which the Persians lost and the Arabs took over. The Arabs then changed and redacted and uh, retconned the histories and the scriptures to match their own need for a prophet, a revelation, and a culture. And most of this probably happened with Abdul Malik. Um, Emmett Scott, I believe, doesn't mention Abdul Malik, but that's that's probably the guy who did it. Now the the problem with this narrative is that it it, it doesn't look at the the issue of the Qiblas and the influence of Nabataean culture. Um, Doctor J. Smith presents a very different or Related but uh, probably more factually correct or factually aligned narrative, in which the, the the basic development of Islam came about as a result of the fall of the Sassanid Empire, the rise of the Umayyads and the rise of the Abbasids and the interplay between these two uh, factions, the Umayyad and the Abbasid, the Abbasid Caliphates, and uh, essentially argues that the evidence from the Qiblas and the evidence from all of the numismatic uh, uh, collections that we have says to us that originally the Nabataean religion is what spread around the world. It was spread by Nabataean traders. Allah, in fact, is the original Nabataean God. Ilallah is uh, his informal name uh, it's a, like a generic term for their god, and it's a, a, a different name that is its actual true name. Uh, he had a consort. He had a, he had a wife uh, in Nabataean um, mythology. And, of course, I mean, this is totally unacceptable to Muslims, but that's, that's what is there. Um, don't argue with me. Argue with the, the evidence, right? Uh, that is why you have a church, uh, excuse me, not a church, a mosque established in Guangzhou, China, um, because of the Nabataean traders. That is why you have a mosque established in India which predates the life of Muhammad, because of the Nabataean traders. Eventually, uh, the Sassanids converted to this kind of proto Islam and were replaced over time by the Umayyads and then the Abbasids. Now, when the Nabataeans were Uh, on the Ascendant, and the Umayyads were based around the Nabataean culture and the Nabataean center. All the Qiblas were pointed towards Petra. When the Abbasids came along, and they were based in a completely different location, they were based in Damascus, um, they needed their own revelation, they needed their own prophet, because they were controlling a Christian and Jewish, primarily Christian and Jewish, part of the world. But they didn't have any legitimacy. To their empire, they didn't have religious legitimacy to their empire. They needed some. That's when Abdul Malik came along, and instated a massive redaction program that went back in time, undid a lot of uh, the kind of previous culture of the the Zoroastrians or the Persians, uh, the, the Zoroastrianism of the Persians, borrowed heavily from Jewish and Christian texts created a, uh, a, a holy book, the, the Qur'an, the, in its earliest form, and created the character of this prophet Muhammad. So now, the, Ab- uh, the Abbasids can basically claim to have a legitimate culture, a legitimate uh, uh, a stamp of religious authority over their conquered territories. They now have a book. They now have a prophet. They now have a revelation. They now have a god. They now have everything that the conquered peoples around them can recognize, and at least be comfortable with. They may not like it, but they're comfortable with it. That is what. That is how you get Islam, in its final sort of codified form. Not in the 7th century, which is when we would expect it, but in the 9th and 10th centuries, which is not when we would expect it, at all. I want to wrap up by taking a look at, uh, bringing things back to where I started. Parallels between Islam and Christianity. (laughs) Islam is a very warped reflection of Christianity. They have, they claim, a book and a man. The book has been conclusively shown, in my opinion, to be unsupportable by the evidence the man has been shown even more conclusively to not have existed, at least the way he is described. What does that leave us with? Christians don't have to defend the claims that Muslims do. We don't claim that the Bible is eternal. We don't claim that it was unchanged. We don't claim that it was um, sent down, not in the way that Muslims do. We claim that it was given to men through the word of God, and men, imperfect, flawed men, wrote it down as best as they could, and translated it and transmitted it through the generations. And we don't claim that uh, anyone other than Jesus is the final prophet. What then are we to make of Islam? Well, they make these claims. They can't support any of them. But look at the personage of Jesus Christ. He is he eternal. I I'm going to repeat Dr. J. Smith's words. Is he eternal? Yes, he is. Is he perfect? Unchanged? Yes, he is. Was he sent down? Yes, he was. Was his the final revelation? Yes, it was. So everything Muslims are looking for, we as Christians already have. And we don't have to defend it. It's been defended so many times. It's been found true. So I want to close really with a plea, a heartfelt plea and an invitation to my Muslim brothers and sisters. Come home. Come back to us. Because everything you're looking for, we already have. All the truths that you desperately seek are with us already. You just have to open your eyes to them. That's all you have to do. And you'll be most warmly welcomed back because you deserve to know the light and the majesty and the power of Jesus. You deserve to feel that warmth and that strength. So, keep your eyes open and look for the call, because it will come. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 44, One Man, One Book, part 2. I am Didact. As always, please support my work by going to the blog, like, share, comment, subscribe. Um, And by all means, visit SuperbShaving.com visit uh, the new blog at didacticmind.com, um, which will be running in parallel for some time until I finally get it, all the infrastructure sorted out. And uh, we'll make it the final website. But until next time, thank you very much for your attention as always. And I will see you on the next one. This is Didact signing off.